Well, as you know, we're working through the, the Sermon on the Mount, and today we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, which we've just read, which we will call marriage and divorce. But before we get going, let's just have a little think about what we're doing. Um, here, here's a man, it happens to be me this morning, who's, who's taking some words of the Lord Jesus Christ and is explaining them. To who? Well, to Christians. And what's the purpose of this man explaining these words of the Lord Jesus Christ to Christians? Well, so that they may learn how to live the Christian life. But there's also non-Christians present. And you're listening in. Now, that's exactly what is happening in the Sermon on the Mount, there is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to Christians. He's explaining to Christians how to live the Christian life. But as he explains to Christians how to live the Christian life, there are non-Christians listening in. So there's an exact parallel. And he's got to the point in his sermon where he's explaining that you can't live the Christian life unless you know the Old Testament. But you've got to know the Old Testament as it is. Not as other people interpret it. Because in those days they had the scribes and Pharisees who were often interpreting, interpreting the Old Testament in a, in a very bad way indeed. But you, you can't live the Christian life without knowing the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, said Jesus in chapter 4, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, sometimes it's said we're New Testament Christians. Uh, we understand what people are saying. Uh, we don't disagree with it, but it's not enough not really accurate to say we're New Testament Christians. We're not. We are New Testament Christians, but actually what we are is, is, is Bible Christians, and nearly three-quarters of our Bible is Old Testament. So here we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, and how, how shall we approach this passage, this rather difficult passage? Well, let's think about the original men and women and presumably a few boys and girls who were, who were listening to that passage in the first place. And as we think about them and how they understood the Sermon on the Mount, and then I think it will be plain to us um, what the Sermon on the Mount has to say to us. So is the slide up there? Yes, it is. There we are. There's, that's all you need to know. So first of all, we're going to find out what they knew. Now, if you look at verse 37, uh, the 27, the, the, the key word is adultery. And if you look at verse 31, the key word is divorce. <clears throat> adultery is sexual immorality by someone who is married. Married. Divorce is the ending of a marriage, although both spouses are still alive. 
So adultery is sexual immorality within marriage. Divorce is the end of a marriage. So actually, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to people about marriage. Uh, that's why this passage is very important. Now, uh, actually, this passage is supremely important. Because the great theme of the Bible, which links it all together, is marriage. The whole of the Old Testament is about marriage. It's about the Lord married to Israel. The whole of the New Testament is about marriage. It's about Christ, the bridegroom, paying the bridal price and bringing home his bride. It's not a mistake, therefore, that the first miracle he does in his, his ministry is in a marriage, and it's not a mistake that the, the revelation ends with the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb in the home of the, of the, of the bridegroom. But the original men and women who heard this sermon weren't like us. They understood marriage. And frankly, um, most evangelicals don't. The vast majority of evangelicals have a hodgepodge of, of ideas about marriage. There's a, there's a bit of Bible um, there's a bit of what people have said about the Bible. There's a bit of Greek philosophy. Uh, there is, actually, because that invaded the early church and it's never left it. There's a bit of Roman Catholicism. Um, that's why some of you think that if someone hasn't got married in church, well, it's okay. It's, it's still a marriage, but it's, it's not really quite what it should be. Uh, that's, that, that's just pl plain old Roman Catholicism coming through and it's still there. And then there's, then there's all the misunderstandings of the Protestant reformers. If you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, the great statement of reformed doctrine, chapter 24, it says, of marriage and of divorce. And you'll read this statement, which is magnificent, and then when you get to the end of it, it's mumbo-jumbo. In the middle of this wonderful confession of faith, you've got a couple of paragraphs which are confusing at best and at worst can be called nonsense. When you come to the 1689 confession, which is the, a Baptist copy, if you like, of the Westminster Confession, you come to chapter 25 of marriage. And that bit in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is so confusing and has all those biblical, um, non-biblical ways of thinking, is it, not there at all, <laughs> which is one of the reasons among many that some of us prefer 1689 London Confession of Faith to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but that's not the subject today. Now, it's true that the original hearers needed some tidying up in their thinking, but overall, the original men and women who heard the Sermon on the Mount were clear about marriage. If you want good books on marriage, on what the Bible teaches, the best books you could buy are by Colin Hamer. He was converted in Belvedere Road in the early 70s, 
he was a businessman for many years, and now he's a leading New Testament scholar, <laughs> which is quite amazing. He's, he's written this extraordinary book called Marital Imagery in the Bible, and that's a bit tough for even, even the most intellectual of you. But he's, he's popularized that into a book called God's Divorce, and that's a really helpful and practical book with, with practical examples in it, which I recommend. So if you want to do some more reading, then please do that. But as the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, these men and women and boys and girls, they understand for the most part marriage as the Bible teaches it. Now, this is what they understand. They understand that marriage is a creation ordinance. One man, one woman, in a unique union, to the exclusion of all others, forming a new social unit, which is the basis of all society. They understand that. They understand that marriage is a family affair. As Jesus looked upon those thousands of people, how many of them had been to a wedding service in a synagogue? None. How many of them had been to a wedding service in the temple? None. How many of them had been to a wedding service in a register office? None. Marriage was a family affair. There wasn't always even a ceremony. There was always an understanding that this man is taking this woman, and he literally did. He came to her home and took her to his. Often there was a ceremony. Often there was a, a lengthy feast, and we were called bun fight. But there wasn't necessarily always even a ceremony. It was a family affair. They understood that it was contractual, that there was a solemn, binding agreement between the husband and the wife. They understood that it was voluntary. Many of the marriages were arranged. But there was no forced marriage. As you know from the book of Genesis, when Abraham's servant goes to get a bride for Isaac, it's, and the Lord actually leads him to the right woman, Rebecca doesn't go to marry Isaac until this question has been asked. Will you go with this man? It's voluntary. They understood that marriage was conditional. The contract endured as long as the promises made in the contract were kept to. And here's the key bit, <clears throat> and this is where the reformers, I think, went very wrong indeed. Marriage in the scriptures is, you ready? Asymmetrical. 
Now, here's my hands. They're symmetrical. Well, I know what symmetrical means because I'm a bit of a fanatic. Uh, if you look at my mantelpiece in my flat, you'll see there's a clock in the middle. There's a brass ornament at each end. And there's two ornaments and two ornaments. So this is a mirrored, mirror image of that. That's what we call symmetry. And some people call it fanaticism. <clears throat> I like things symmetrical. I'm pleased that the Lord made me reasonably symmetrical. But... Uh, Here's the hands. Now, people think marriage is like that. The wife's obligations and the husband's obligations and what the wife expects and what the man expects are identical. They're just a, a mirror image one of the other. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Marriage is asymmetrical. There's the husband, there's the wife. What he promises to the marriage is not the same as what she promises to the marriage. What he expects from the marriage is not what she expects from the marriage. He promised to be a husband. Now we all know, perhaps we don't all know, what husbandry is. The Industrial Revolution started in Britain in 1731 with the publication of a book by Jethro Tull called Horse Hoeing Husbandry. What on earth was it about? Well, it was about husbandry. Husbandry is giving tender loving care to the soil and to the plant which grows in it. So you fuss over it and you care for it and you love it and you tend it and you look after it and you feed it and you prune it and it's precious to you. That's husbandry. The man promises to be a husband. You're mine. I love you. I care for you, I'll provide for you, I'll water you, I'll feed you, I'll prune you, but you're precious to me. The woman promised to be a helpmeet in Old English, a helper suitable for him. Where he goes, I go. I will do everything in my power to build him up and not knock him down, to make him happy, to make his house into a home. I will do everything in my power to make him the best man in the world. They all understood that. And because they understood marriage so biblically, they understood divorce biblically. Now, whether you're a man or a woman, if your husband or your wife commits sexual immorality, you're free to walk away from the marriage. If you're a woman and your husband doesn't husband you, you're free to walk away from the marriage. If you're a man, you can never walk away from the marriage unless your wife commits sexual immorality. 
That's why when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, he decides that he will put her away quietly. It seems clear to him that she's committed adultery. It takes an angel and, of course, God himself to explain to him that that's not the case. He wants to put her away quietly because to put her away publicly would mean that she would be condemned as an adulterer and she'd be stoned to death. If we don't understand that marriage is asymmetrical, we will never understand the prophets. God says to Israel, I love you. I chose you. You're mine. You're precious to me. I'll look after you. I'll feed you. I'll care for you. I'll water you. I'll prune you. But I will never, ever walk out on you. So don't commit adultery. Because if you do, at that point, says Jehovah, I will end the marriage. And all the prophets are basically saying that. You've got idols. The marriage is in danger. And then you come to the New Testament and you come to John, for example, who says to the New Testament church, keep yourself from idols. All that they understood. That's what they knew. That's the main part of, of the, the most difficult part of this sermon done, I think. Now then, number two, what they needed to know. We're still thinking about those original hearers of Matthew 5, 27 to 32. They knew a lot, but they didn't know enough. If you're going to live the Christian life, says the Son of God, there are some things you must know. And at this point, he is specifically speaking to the men, and presumably because most of the hearers present were men. Verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, says Jesus, don't be self-righteous and say, I've never been guilty of any sort of indecency. My marriage is perfectly okay. You've got no grounds, says Jesus, to be pleased with yourself. All of you men are having affairs. You've had that desire. Tell me, what's the difference between having that desire and having that desire which leads you to the act? It's the same desire. 
this one led to the act. But you've got the same desire. You have committed adultery, says Jesus, in your heart. The fact is that the Lord of God must not be understood in the way the Pharisees understand it. The law of God deals with the very nature of things, not just with the outside, not just with externals. The law of the land deals with externals. But the law of God deals with the heart. Purity is internal. The Christian life is a matter of the heart. And you can't live the Christian life unless you get hold of this. The Christian life, says Jesus, is not ticking boxes and saying, at least I haven't committed adultery. That's what they needed to know. Verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Men, and I think we can say now, men and women. Purity and holiness don't come just by sitting back and letting it happen. Let go and let God, some Bible teachers teach. You don't live the Christian life by being passive. You've got to take action. And that action has got to be drastic. And the action has got to be continuously drastic. As drastic as plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand. You have a simple choice, says Jesus, every day. Holiness or hell. Not because you will be saved by your holiness, but because holiness is the badge of the Christian life. It's the proof that the Holy Spirit is giving you a holy spirit. Holiness is the proof that you're a Christian. Verses 31 to 32. These are the things that they needed to know. 31. 
Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, as for divorce, says Jesus, let's be clear. Divorce is not a free-for-all. The scribes say so. The Pharisees say so. But divorce is not a free-for-all. The Pharisees and scribes were telling people, telling men, that is, you just... Give your wife a certificate of divorce. If, if she doesn't please you anymore, just give her a certificate of divorce and show her the door. There are certain parts of the world today where that's how divorce is done. You take your wife to the door and you say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that's the end of the marriage. The divorce certificate of which Moses speaks, it's part of Old Testament law, was not issued by the synagogue, was not issued by the temple, was not issued by the priest, was not issued by the state, it was issued by the husband. A woman comes to her husband and says, you're not husbanding me. I want to leave the marriage. Now, if she just goes to the door now and she goes out, someone might say, ah, 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 we know why you left the marriage. You, you committed adultery, didn't you? And now her life's in danger. So the husband gives her a certificate of divorce to say that she left the marriage because she believed that he wasn't husbanding her. And incidentally, we have many examples of these certificates. Um, quite a few of them have been preserved and, and discovered in, in recent years in, in various ways in, amongst various manuscripts which have been dug up in, in the Middle East. Um, they, they, they're reasonably detailed. They would take about a... They're about that long. And they explain that he, Mrs... This lady has been married to this particular man and she's leaving the marriage because she thinks this, this, and this. And, and the husband says, I attest that that's the reason that she's leaving. But you men, says Jesus, we're still now in verses 31 and 32, you have no right to divorce your wife for any reason except sexual immorality. That's what the Old Testament teaches, says the Son of God, and I'm not changing it. Can't you see, says Jesus, what your free-for-all approach is doing to women? Your wife is your wife. Until you have proof that she's committed sexual immorality. And if she hasn't, but you divorce her nonetheless, you are putting your wife in a situation which is impossible. Because in that society, there was nowhere for her to go except into the arms of another man. And now your wife, says Jesus, 
is in the hands of another man. So you're making her into an adulteress. And you're making him into an adulterer. Which is why I think we should actually, just to make the verse clear, we should read it like this, verse 32. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sex sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced in this illegal way commits adultery. I think that's what the Lord is saying. It can't be a blanket statement that a divorced woman can never remarry. It can't be that because Jesus and the Old Testament both allow the possibility of divorce, which is always the end of a marriage and therefore the possibility of remarriage. There's no wilderness like in modern society to which a divorced woman can go. In that society, if you get rid of your wife, she will just go into the arms of another man because there's nowhere else to go. So that's what they needed to know. Now, what we need to know. Verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here is something for every Christian. Here is something for every non-Christian. Your desires are deeds. I didn't say your thoughts are deeds. Your desires, in God's eyes, are deeds. David wants to build the temple. God says, no. But it was good that it was in your heart. And so in God's eyes, David is a temple builder. So positively, desires are deeds. I think that's a great encouragement in the Christian life, isn't it? I'm a terrible failure. I don't know about you. I know I'm getting a bit dogmatic and a bit worked up and I don't get to the end of any day. Do you feel very pleased with my Christian life? Do you? I've got nothing to plead at the end of the day except the, the blood of Christ. But I do know that I desire holiness. And I desire to understand the Bible. And I desire to live the Lord's day well. And I desire to witness better. And I desire to have a purer character. I know all that I desire. And I'm so pleased that this teaching's in the Bible that desires are deeds. But it's true negatively, as Jesus has just explained. You desire adultery, you've done it. When you desire something more than you desire God, 
You've broken the first commandment. When you desire to worship God in a way that he has not commanded, you've broken the second commandment. When you want God to be different from the way he is, you've broken the third commandment. When you wish Sunday wasn't Sunday because there's something you want to do and it shouldn't be done today, but you want to do it nonetheless, you've broken the fourth commandment. When mum and dad says something to you and you don't really want to do it and you, f you feel resentful that they've asked you, and it might even be a grown-up who's got elderly parents, or it might even be some responsibility you have to your dead parents, but you don't. You, you just resent the fact that you've got to do it. You, you've broken the fifth commandment. When you want somebody out of your life, you've broken the sixth commandment. When you have a lustful thought, as we've discovered here, you've broken the seventh commandment. When you're thinking to yourself, I wonder how that which belongs to him or her could be mine, you've broken the eighth commandment. When you resent having to tell the truth, you've broken the ninth commandment. And when you want something which belongs to somebody else, You've broken the Tenth Commandment, and so have I. I'm glad that in all this great teaching of marriage, it's all the time leading me to the cross of Christ. It's telling me that the bridegroom came. He paid the price. And my inward sins... Do you remember the, the hymn, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be? I know a fount where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. God never yet turned away a man or a woman who came to him and said, God, be merciful to me. Sinner. Verses 29 to 30, there's the right eye being plucked out. There's the right hand being plucked off. And I'm saying, and Jesus is saying, desires are deeds. And some of you are saying, I can't help what comes into my mind. But you can. If a certain TV program stirs up dirty thoughts, cut it out. If a certain website stirs up filthy thoughts, cut
cut it out. If a certain social media platform or a book or a place or a sport or a pastime or a friendship or a Christian activity stirs up uncontrollable sinful desires, cut it out. And instead, what then? Listen to this. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate, think deeply on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Finally, Verses 31 to 32, this is what we should know. Men, your wife is not somebody else. She is you. That's why the Bible says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Your wife is not somebody else. She is you. Married ladies, your husband is not somebody else. He is you. And that is the nature of the mysterious union, which is marriage. And the moment you start thinking of him, the moment you start thinking of her as somebody else, you have already divorced them in your mind. Because desires are deeds. And so throughout the Bible, in this Sermon on the Mount, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we are told that I must make up my mind and I must take steps to make sure that my marriage although it's a very, very, very pale reflection, is nonetheless an accurate reflection of the relationship which exists between Christ and his church. <laughs>